Welcome to Season 6 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Before we get started in this episode, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to all those of you that have subscribed, listened to and downloaded the podcast. It means the world to know that there are teachers across the globe that are finding these resources useful. So thank you. It's my great pleasure today to share with you a conversation that I recently had with Ashley Keith Pratt. He is the Executive Director, Curriculum Pedagogy and Innovation at Melbourne Girls Grammar School, the 2022 The Educator Magazine's Rising Star and the President of the History Teachers Association of Victoria. In addition, he is the co-director of the Melbourne Girls Grammar Institute, which is a global educational community hub that's dedicated to innovation and leadership in educational practices. In our wide-ranging conversation, we talked about the importance of conversations around the dinner table and how this impacted his childhood, the richness of history and why it tells a story of where we have come from and who we're becoming, and what we can do as a profession to give people greater boundaries between home and school. Ashley was a wonderful guest and it was an incredible privilege to speak with him. Ash, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk with me today. Not a problem, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be with you. Where are you, uh, where are you finding in from? Uh, I'm at home at the moment in in Melbourne, so it's uh, as I look outside, it's a, a cool day, but there is some sun about, which I'm um, nice. given it's Melbourne may change at any moment. Nice, absolutely. Melbourne kind of has four seasons in one day, at uh, least. Yeah, at least. Uh, what is your drink of choice? Could be uh, caffeinated or other. Oh, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I do like a decent cocktail, and my one at, of choice at the moment is a French martini. Hey, that sounds extremely uh, sophisticated. It's not. It's it's a pretty pretty basic one to make, but it's uh, it's a very easy drinking one. So it's uh, vodka, chambord, uh, lime, and pineapple juice. Fantastic. Do you uh, make your own drinks at home? Are you? I I, I can if I want. It's a lot easier to go out and have someone else make it. But um, no, no, I've been known to to break out the cocktail shaker at home every now and then. <laughs> nice one. Um, what is an item that's still on your bucket list? Oh, so this one, uh, I have actually got a uh, a colleague I know at another school who's been visiting a place that's been on my list over the last set of school holidays, which is Iceland. So Iceland. he's been sending me pictures of all his amazing adventures uh, through Iceland, and it's just like pushing the visit to Iceland up my bucket list further towards the top with um, some of the really amazing pictures and adventures yeah. that he's on up there. I think I saw, it's interesting you mentioned that, I think I saw the other day a, a picture of a church in Iceland. Oh, like the, the church in Reykjavik, the, the yeah. sort of Norse slash. I want to go just one. to see yeah. that. That looks it, amazing. Yeah, yeah I, I got the picture sent through to me and it, um, <laughs> it's definitely looked amazing. Nice one. Uh, what is um, a book or books uh, that has stopped you? Sorry, that uh, let me rephrase that. Uh, what is a book uh, that has uh, made you stop and reconsider a few things in your life? So I had... If I pick an education book, uh, the one that really made me stop and think maybe uh, maybe I need to think about this in a different way. It's a it's a book by uh, Michael Young called Knowledge and the Future School. Okay, uh, and it it really when I read it, it's one of those things where you run across a book where you you have had all these sort of random thoughts about you know in this case education in your life, and when you read something that really crystallizes some quite diverse thoughts and, you know, experiences that you've had into some a more cohesive yeah. understanding of elements of education. And I read that and got to the end. I went, oh, so this is what I sort of align with in this. Right. Someone's finally managed to articulate it in a much better way than I can. Interesting. Interesting. And is there a book that is uh, not related to your job that you oh, have? Read? So... Uh, yes. Um, so uh, I've been doing some training lately uh, with um, co coaching training, like uh, growth coaching, instructional coaching, that kind of stuff. And uh, the book that I've been reading lately, it's just called An Introduction to Coaching Skills. Mm -hmm. and I've been doing some work with um, the Growth Coaching International uh, group on this. And it's really 
made me reflect on how I, not just as a, as a leader in a school, but also just as a person, how I speak and interact with the people around me wow. and what are some ways to, to, to speak and to converse with people that it can be really empowering for them as well. And so, again, it's one of those things that made me just sit back and reflect and go, I, you know, there's a better way to do this. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I recently did an interview on the podcast with a, a wonderful lady called Andrea Stringer, and she's yep. part of the growth yes. coaching. Yeah, um, she's, she's, I've, I've uh, spoken with her before. She's fantastic. She's just brilliant. And I, I was listening to her podcast episode again last night. Maybe this is where all of the downloads come from is my own downloading <laughs> listening to previous conversations, but just hearing some of the ways she walks you through that coaching process. And it's really inspired me to, to do a little bit more work in that, in it, that space as well. It is. And it's just putting a framework around, um, sort of things that allow you to be a lot more purposeful uh, yeah. in how you interact and be much more, you know, they, we speak about in, when, when I've been doing my coaching training, we speech, speak about the coaching way of being. Yeah. Well. And that, that is the most important part of the, the learning that I've done in this is how it influences my yeah. actions um, just in my everyday life. Yeah. It's, it's really, um, it's really interesting. Like one of the best things I have done professionally and, and personally uh, is has been to get a coach. And I think I've, I put it off for so long because I thought, ah, oh, it seems a bit, a bit American, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I know that. I know that. Yep. A bit cringy, but it wasn't until I sat through um, and, and have continued to sit through a number of sessions that it's just been really wonderful to have somebody to uh, ask questions and to yep. listen um, yeah. and to be really objective. And so um, yeah, that that's really cool. Um, if you could have a dinner party with anybody, uh, who would who would be there? Obviously, yeah. family and friends. They they kind of get well, a free plate at the table. Or you might not want them there. It's up to you. Well, no, I was going to say I'm going to be incredibly soppy uh, with my answer to this one. And okay. so, if I was designing my a dinner party with anyone, there, it would it would just be my family. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, that would that would be there because I I thought about this and I and I was trying to you know being a uh, my background in history education, I was like, oh, you know, who would I invite from the annals of history? And I reflected yeah. on it and I said, my favorite dinner party is is my family. Just That's really wonderful. We've started doing that. Uh, well, sorry, for a little while we've been doing that. With, I've got two little girls and we sit around the table each night and talk yep. about what is our um, favorite thing for the day. And we have a, a two and a half year old and a four and a half year old. And some of those times are the most precious memories um and so i i would agree i think i would prefer to sit down with my family they're just I, they're just growing, yeah growing up uh, we always every night it was uh, you know the tv's turned off and everyone sits around the dinner table and has dinner as a family and there's there's a power in that uh that really brings a lot of cohesion to that that sort of family dynamic as well when everyone is there all yeah. together you know talking about whatever it is that you want to talk about yeah, absolutely. It's really wonderful. And I think definitely for me, as I get older, they're some of the moments that I hold most precious. Mm. Um, so, um, uh, Ash, what was your upbringing like? And what are you most grateful for from your parents, speaking of family? So I was born and raised in Hobart. I'm a Tassie boy. Uh, and it is still possibly of all the places in the world, you know, maybe I'm being very parochial, but it's my favourite place to be uh, is in Hobart. I was there a couple of weekends I go for the Dark Mofo Winter Festival, which got really crazy and insane. It was fantastic. Not like the city that I grew up in uh, at all there. But um, yeah, I was you know, born and raised there. Pretty traditional kind of upbringing. I'm the, the middle of three uh, kids, you know, my older sister, my younger brother. Um, you know, we had a really close connection with our grandparents. We lived across the road from one set of grandparents. So growing up there in that environment was really fantastic Hobart is a very sort of calm place you know you get off the plane at the airport and everything seems to slow down a little bit in a really positive and relaxing kind of way growing up there I went to a very small school of 100 students from prep to year 10 uh, it was a great place to just to be because everyone knew everyone um, it was a, a really uh, fantastic close-knit community and I think that you know, I moved over to Melbourne when I was about um, about uh, halfway through year eight, I think it was. But it's sort of, as I think about, you know, that that growing up and the, those formative years and then what I'm grateful for from my parents, it sort of ties in that I, I remember growing up that the most important thing 
in our house was it was a very calm household to grow up in. It was, I dare I say, a very quiet household almost to grow up in. It was always warm and welcoming and it made you feel sort of safe to walk in and know that everything was fine here. And I think that's what I'm most grateful for from my parents is the the calmness of the upbringing, the quiet, the quietness of the upbringing almost, which is a strange thing to say. Uh, and, you know, after moving to Melbourne, I finished my high school education, went to university here to uh, La Trobe University, which I absolutely love that place out in Bandura uh, and ended up um, doing a Bachelor of Arts, double majoring in history and political science, and then sort of fell into teaching. And that's a little bit about my upbringing. Fantastic. That's really, um, that's really interesting. And I wonder if, um, do you think that has impacted the way that you approach teaching that kind of calm upbringing? Yes. Yeah. Oh, definitely. A hundred percent. I like to think of myself that I'm a calm kind of teacher and you'd probably have to ask my students and my colleagues how much that's true. But uh, you know, I, I always think that um, education and learning is a is a is a uh, an experience that you can go through that's so empowering you know it's it shouldn't be adversarial it shouldn't be um it shouldn't be stressful obviously there's things that we come across which will find more difficult than others but there is no problem we can come across we can't solve together uh, is sort of how i approach it with my students and when you ask them i think they would say oh yeah mr pratt he's a very sort of calm person in his class, we we always feel, I would hope they would say, we always feel safe and listened to. Fantastic. I think that's such an important, um, such an important attribute. So um, it just out of interest, is there something that you've changed your mind about uh, since it could be personally, it could be professionally? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah, this is one, you know, this is where if I start to lay my cards on the table of some of the things uh, that I believe in, in terms of education, this is where maybe half your audience will turn off the podcast at uh, this point. Because I, when I began my career, I used to be a pretty big, big proponent of that sort of inquiry-based learning and things like that. And over, over the my career, I've definitely changed my mind on that. And now I'm a pr- much bigger proponent where, where it's appropriate of a, a more explicit and direct instruction model of teaching. And, you know, you can hear the, you can hear the listeners now saying, oh, no, one of those ones. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah. I think, you know, all the, the learning, the research that I've done uh, and my experience as a classroom teacher, I've sort of ended up wanting to provide a lot more structure and a lot more explicit um, teaching of what's expected of my students uh, and I can only speak to my experience of what I see my students able to do the that when I am a lot more explicit with them around what I expect them to, to do in my class they're a lot less stressed they perform at a higher level they have a better understanding of what they mean, mean to do and that's been a change throughout my career you know uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said he was talking about sort of people who convert to Christianity but like being on a train uh, from Paris to Berlin, some people take the train by day and some people take the train by night. And if you take the train by day, you know the exact moment when you cross the border from France to Germany. Mm. But like uh, in this, I was one of the people who took the train by night and I woke wow. up one day and realised, oh, I don't really like some of this discovery learning stuff anymore. And it was, that had been a process over a period of time. And then now I'm much more clear with my students is, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want, uh, how it should be done. Here is an example of how it should look like. And I see the benefits for them yeah. uh, in my teaching. It, it, it's interesting you say that because I think that it's very easy to go along with educational trends and some, are, mm. some of them are, um, I mean, I think all are well-meaning, but I mean, I do think at the moment there seems to be a bit of a, sw- the pendulum is maybe swinging back towards more of that explicit instruction um, in, in certain areas. and. Um, Ash, would you mind tell me tell me about history? Like, why do you love history? Because my I also love history, but my experience of history um, was very different uh, in primary school and high school uh, than it is today. So, why? What is it about history that you're particularly passionate? Oh, how long do you have to go through this? So that's uh, a good question. <laughs> yeah, I could talk for hours about this. History is, I suppose, there's a number of different levels to that question. Um, but ultimately, I think the reason that history has, um, this, both the study of history and the teaching of history has been so central, both in my life and my career, 
is from, from you know ultimately I do love reading an interesting story, but that's not unique to history. There's in literature and um, in other areas of uh, of you know knowledge building and stuff. There's plenty of interesting stories. The reason that history spoke so strongly to me throughout my career and personally is what it tells us about who we are mm. uh, and the the and who we are now by the stories that we tell today. Yeah. And then who we have been. What do we say? What do we know about who we were previously? And if you look at the the history of Australia uh, as an example, and you know, I I read a lot more history than just Australian history, but if you look at it, the stories that we say now, the arguments that we have about history now uh, tell us a lot about us as a society, about who we are, about our, you know, our strengths as a society and also some of the areas where we we have more work to do. If you look at the way we um, speak about Indigenous histories, first Mm. Australian histories in this nation today, we know today probably that how much more work we have to do in this space yeah. than perhaps we did previously and the yeah. way it, it brings awareness to us um as a as a society yeah. is what really has power for me as well and i suppose you know i mentioned before that my undergrad degree was in history and political science and you can probably see the threads of those two through there in in how history speaks to the to the the body politic of today as well it's so interesting and i i came to the uh sorry i came to australia uh in uh years end of year seven mm-hmm. um and i i was obviously from, sorry from the united kingdom and so i was told i mean the only history we learned in the uk was the romans the the uh, not even the vikings the romans the egyptians and essentially it was from a very um uh English-centric uh, point of view, and it did make me wonder about how history is told, um, and also by who and through which lens it is spoken. And and I knew not embarrassingly, I knew nothing about Australian history other than colonization, uh, which is um, embarrassing to say. And so when I came to Australia, there was this whole uh, richness um, of uh, of Australia that I had no idea about. And would you mind maybe talking a little bit about how we tell stories and how we, um, uh, the importance of the perspectives that we're teaching in history? Sorry, that was a very worded question. No, no, no. I get what you mean. The way we, the way we tell stories in history is important because history is a, uh, you you have to actually sort of almost have to take a step back and say yeah. what are what are we talking about when we talk about both teaching and, and reading history here? Because if you know if I jump forward too quickly without sort of establishing how I view it, mm. get very uh, confused. So there's kind of if I oversimplify it slightly, there's kind of two ways of looking at it. You've got the kind of history as heritage yeah. approach which is the study of history or um, research in history is about just sort of preserving and, and taking forward what was, as, as if what was is this, this body of knowledge that is uh, understandable and say, well, you know, this is what happened and we want people to know it and understand it. And so we will teach it to them so they know it going forward. Aspects of Australian history, uh, you know, like First World War, colonisation, things like that. But then you also have history as a discipline of study, as an, an academically rigorous pursuit, as a way of investigating the past, which has its own rules, its own ways of doing things that have evolved over literally four to 5,000 years. If you think back to, you know, the first historian, you go back to the, you know, Herodotus and things like that. Mm-hmm. You've got a way of doing history, which has evolved literally over 5,000 years. Yeah. And it has its own ways, its own, in, you know, procedures, its own ways of understanding that, yeah, it can get a little bit messy sometimes. But when we teach history, my view is much more around that sort of disciplinary history uh, yeah. approach that we're trying to teach our young people in our classrooms a way of viewing the world. Wow. Uh, and that it has certain procedures, it has certain ways of doing things. Uh, that uh, that they can learn and you can teach them explicitly in history this is how we you know use sources to understand and create an interpretation of the past mm-hmm. and the, that you know one person's interpretation of the past can be different from another person's interpretation of the past 
And that's not only okay, that's the point of yeah. doing it is that we come up with different emphases and different ways of interpreting sources and different uh, arguments that we create about the past. And one of the most powerful things about doing that is that you teach young people a way to hold an idea in their heads and to question it and to pull it apart and reconstruct it yeah. um, uh, in a way that helps them to learn and that having different understandings of that and that the person sitting next to them can have a different way of interpreting it yeah. is fine. That's, that's so interesting and also wonderfully refreshing to hear you talk about it because when I was at school, um, it, the focus seemed to be on that first element that you talked about, which was sort of this recollection of historical facts, the Battle of Hastings, the Battle of Waterloo, and all the Pearl Harbor, and all of these things that essentially you can now Google. But I love that there has been a swing, um, quite rightly so, more towards those historical inquiry skills. And my only perspective is of the K-6 New South Wales history curriculum, but there is that focus on developing that critical and historical thinking. And I think that's so important. And I love the fact that you talked about how our interpretation can be so different mm. um, and the lens in which through uh, which we sort of view these historical events. So I, mean, I think on that, would you mind spending a few moments maybe unpacking your, um, your master's submission? And for those people that haven't read it, um, uh, it was titled A World-Class Curriculum, Historical Thinking and 21st Century Skills in the Australian Curriculum for History. Yeah, I'm going to assume most people haven't read this. Look, I, I was I was surprised uh, Ash to find it online, um, and so I, I I was reading uh, through it and making notes a few days ago. And um, I, if it's okay, I will put a link to it and I oh, show go for it. Yeah, no, it's um, in the it's in the Melbourne it's in the Melbourne University repository. It's there yeah. for anyone to access. Amazing, so critique it. Yeah. So what was the um, what was the thesis behind that and why focus so much on historical thinking and 21st century skills? So the, basically, if I take it down to its really sort of um, core, it was the, you know, we, we have a new Australian curriculum that's just yeah. been sort of announced and published now. But this was an analysis of the previous version. And, and at its most basic, I wanted to know, is the Australian curriculum for history a good curriculum? That, that was basically the investigation that I, I wanted to undertake. And it, uh, in designing the research, it kind of felt that there were two halves to this question. Right. There was both the, um, uh, the, the statement, the uh, government statement about what the history curriculum was meant to do was that they wanted a history curriculum that was A, world-class, and B, would prepare students for the 21st century. And so my investigation focused on those two claims a, is it a world-class history curriculum in that does it reflect the, the, the current body of knowledge about what constitutes good teaching and learning in history from a curriculum perspective? And then the other half of that is, is it preparing students for the 21st century? Because the Australian curriculum has a stated purpose on integrating what they call general capabilities, what the broader literature would probably describe as 21st century skills. And it was intended that these would be represented within each discipline area as well. And so I looked into, is it doing these two things? Is it, is it reflecting the existing research on what constitutes good teaching and learning in history? And is it reflecting the research on what constitutes um, 21st century skills? My outcome basically was that it was doing neither particularly well. And that's a very easy thing to research is to critique uh, something and basically say how terrible it is. Uh, my, and then people say, oh, well, what could we do better? And uh, I get, have my get out of jail free card with that, uh, which I say, oh, that's not the purpose of my investigation. I'm not here to, to present a different model. I'm simply here to evaluate the current model against the existing body of research. But it, it was pretty lacking, I've got to say. Uh, so, you know, if you look at it from the teaching and learning of history, it, um, it wasn't particularly well-structured, particularly when you compared the primary years of the curriculum P to six, and then against the secondary years of seven to 12, they really didn't work well together. They weren't structured. They weren't designed in a way that worked particularly well together, especially the P to six did not reflect what constituted good teaching and learning history particularly well. The, the way the 21st century skills sort of element of it, I found so interesting because I went into this research 
really positive about the role that a really structured history education could play in developing these 21st century skills, critical and creative thinking, um, intercultural understanding, ethical capabilities, things like that. And as I did my research, as research is meant to do, I learned and my, I changed my mind quite a lot. And I got to the end of it and, you know, I sort of had done my analysis of the curriculum, sort of saying it's not really representing these ideas in a way that's embedded in a particularly rigorous way. But I got to the end of it feeling pretty uninspired by the 21st century skills argument in its entirety, which wasn't really part of the thesis. I was just making an evaluation. But in part of doing that, you obviously have to, in the literature review, engage in that, you know, what is 21st century skills? And uh, it wasn't something that I found particularly convincing. And I've done a lot more reading around this since I finished that MED thesis. And I think the thing that particularly um, didn't gel with me was the idea that some of these skills like critical and creative thinking are discrete skills that can be expressed. Uh, they are, I don't actually believe they are. And I think when you look at a lot of work, especially around cognitive psychology, there's, there's no such thing as a critical thinking skill. You can be taught to think critically in history but then you can't walk into a science classroom and there's not really a generic set of skills that you can transfer across. You have to be taught to think critically in science. So I think that the curriculum and the, the 21st century skills broader literature is kind of on a little bit of a dead end road there a little bit. And so, yeah, it's not something I've done any more research on since then, but I ended my analysis really not convinced by its merits. Fascinating. Um, and, and just to clarify, though, uh, Ash, this is the Australian curriculum, not the state-based interpretation yeah. of the No, this is the Australian curriculum version 8, I think it was. Okay. I think we've had version 10 or so that's just been okay. published. Um, and it was just the history curriculum that I was looking at. For my and, and just then to ask, I know you weren't uh, researching um, what we could do better, um, but just a couple of follow-up questions. Um, well, actually, three. Firstly, yep. What can we do better um, in terms of uh, how we are presenting um, uh, this to our students? Uh, also, what are some of the features of some great syllabuses, syllabi? I'm not sure how what, what the plural of that is. And our final follow-up question is, like, what do we do now? Like, we've got this document that we have to use. How do we um, utilise it and also maybe... Um, um, enhance it? There's a, three very intense questions. So thank you for <laughs> so, uh, your first question uh, was there around sort of, well, what can what we, we do better? Yeah. What can we do better uh, here? Yeah. And I think there's, there's a lot that we can do better, but it, you need to first sort of re uh, review some of the assumptions uh, yeah. that are in the curriculum itself. Yeah. And um, I'm a, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to say we shouldn't be teaching students how to think critically. I think that's a very core part of education. But I think that you do need to admit, first of all, that knowledge is organized and has been organized for thousands of years around, you know, certain what we now call disciplines. Uh, and that, you know, the, the curriculum as it stands is organized around those disciplines. But you do have an attempt to try and weave these generic structures through it. And there's a term that I was taught, um, I think it was Christine Council, a, a history education academic from the United Kingdom who speaks about genericism, which is a term that I've used before, which is trying to sort of impose some generic structures across discipline areas. And you end up sort of killing what's special about those, uh, those areas with the imposition of these generic structures. And so I think you really do need to start to move away from that and treating, um, you know, history as, as history. And if you want students to be critical and creative thinkers, then you need to think about that through history, not through the imposition of some sort of generic structure on top of it. There are many people who would disagree with me uh, around that. And that's a, you know, it's a, it's always a really interesting um, discussion to have but really focusing more on those disciplinary structures, I think is where you need to start this yeah. conversation. And if you look at, uh, you mentioned before, you know, the state-based 
curriculum and syllabuses like the New South Wales syllabus and the Victorian curriculum, I think they both, both of them do it a lot better than the Australian curriculum does. Um, and, yeah. you know, there are, there are reasons for that uh, there as well. Your second question, uh, which, <laughs> forgive me, I sort of got lost in that. What was your That's second okay. question? Um, the second question was, um, and you kind of answered that. Um, what, so what are some of the features um, of uh, great sort of history uh, syllabuses? Um, and you talked a little bit about the, sort of the importance of not kind of overgeneralizing and also... The, yeah, yeah, and I think it's, I think there's also... Um, when you're designing a, a syllabus or a curriculum structure, one mm. of the things that perhaps it was a little bit of a dirty word uh, previously, but when you're thinking about the, the knowledge structure, the, yeah. the literally what they, they should know, we need to get a lot better at thinking about how that knowledge is sequenced right. across the curriculum and across the syllabus as well. Because there's questions that I ask uh, myself in my my own planning and that I ask my colleagues, which is how is what the student is learning today or in this unit or in this year or in year seven or in this unit on ancient Rome or in this in particular lesson about, you know, Roman beliefs, how does it prepare them for the next lesson or the next unit yeah. or the next year? And how yeah. does it build upon the previous lesson or the previous unit or the previous year? Because yeah. we need to, I think, do a lot better in the sequencing of this knowledge because there's often students who will not yeah. be able to understand how what they're learning fits in to that sequencing. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but um, it might have actually been Christine Council who spoke about a curriculum as being um, knowledge constructed over time. Yeah. And that's the, the purpose, that it is a sequence. It is almost yeah. a story that students have to go through. And that's not just true in history. Because if you look in um, subjects like mathematics and science, it's probably even more important there where you have quite vertical structures of knowledge, mathematics being po possibly the perfect example of a vertical structure of knowledge, where in order to have success at this level, they need to have mastered the level that came before yeah. it. Um, yeah. You know, whatever, I'm not a maths teacher, but whatever element that yeah. it is, learning fractions at this level is almost a precondition for learning what comes in the year level that's above it. Yeah. And we need to get a lot better at understanding that both at a curriculum level, but also a, an in-school planning level as well. Yeah. It's so important, I think, to talk about those threads that go right mm -hmm. the way from K to two all the way uh, up, sorry, K to two, K to six all the way yeah. uh, up to year 12. And I love that idea that we are constantly building um, on previous skills. And I think it's it's also so important as educators, and so my world is, is K to six, um, but to realise what the teachers previously have taught. And yes. so to get that sort of broader perspective, it's not just about the students that are in your care for this year. Um, they are part of a much kind of broader uh, journey. And I, I love that idea of asking those uh, or teaching those skills. Um, Ash, uh, in your um, bio, and we've talked about two of the three things you have, uh, curriculum, history and Lego. Uh, but why did Lego uh, make its way into well, I, Like, we all have to have our little hobbies, don't we? Oh. I do love Lego, particularly Star Wars Lego. And it's unfortunately one of those things where if you buy too much of it, you run out of space to put it. My, uh, it's, a, it's a constant uh, battle between me and my partner about how much Lego I'm allowed to have. And <laughs> what has been your most outrageous Lego purchase? Oh, that's an easy one. So I, I, I do own right. the official longest official Lego set that has ever been made, which was longest, the, the long, not the most pieces, the longest uh, Lego construction, which is the Star Wars Superstar Destroyer, uh, which is around, I think, about a meter long. Uh, and so this is an actual, um, it came in a box. Yep. Things that, you know, it's interesting to see you light up almost as much as when you're talking about history, when you're talking about Lego. Well, um, it, but it's just fun. Like, okay. Look, I, I, there is no, there is no judgment here. I love Lego <laughs> as well. Um, it hasn't made it into my, uh, into my bio, but what is it about, uh, Lego that, uh, well, it's almost like there's a mindfulness about it. Like uh, people, when they do mindfulness activities, you know, puzzle building or jigsaw puzzles, <laughs> things like that, like that superstar destroyer that I made, it took 16 hours in order to construct it from start to finish, which are divided across two days to do that um and there, 
The, the only and, moment you get slightly angry is when you cannot find that one piece amidst the mess that is over your table, trying yeah. to find the one piece that you need to do the next step. But there is a sort of calming uh, sort of nature to it. We we actually did a um, a staff wellbeing day. I love this. School. This is great. Yeah. Uh, um, last term, and this was a an initiative of my my colleague Lauren Sayer, who is amazing, and she sort of designed this staff wellbeing day. And we had all these different things happening, but one of the things we had just in a corner of one of the rooms, we just had all these random Lego pieces just there. You can buy secondhand Lego online, boxes and boxes of it for people just to come in and to fiddle around with. And it's amazing. I, think I spent about amazing. half the day there. I oh. think just just building random stuff. I'm not incredibly creative with it, but it's just fiddling around with it. It's a very kind of calming experience where you don't have to worry about any of the stresses of anything else. You can just build yeah. some Lego. I, I one of my favorite interviews um, that I've done on, the, on this podcast was by a gentleman called Bo Stern Thompson, who was the um, I think the, the president of Lego Education. And <laughs> wow, it was so much fun, and he was talking about that about how um, usually sometimes in professional learning he will just place a pile of Lego bricks in the middle of the table and say off you go, and to see grown. I mean, we're all big kids, yeah, um, but to see grown ups who are very sort of professional and, and outcomes based but to see them just enjoy themselves and build things I, I think is a really it's a long lost art I think I, I agree and Lego seems to be one of those things and I'm sure there's others but it's one of those things where adults and children can be at the table together mm-hmm. uh, and have fun and boys and girls adults children doesn't matter. Like, yeah it doesn't matter and everyone is there I you know I have a, an 18 month year old nephew and he's just, he's nearly at the point where I can start buying him some Lego, uh, which I'm sure my sister will eventually have to send me a message saying, can you please stop? Yeah, there is too stop. much Lego. Here. Yeah. So how um, how proud are you of your Lego uh, construction, your meetup? Do you, I mean, do, when when people come around to your house, do you bring it out? Uh, I can see on the oh. behind you, there's photos of some of your qualifications. Have you considered putting a photo of your Lego construction? There's there, there's pieces around the place and it always ends up coming up as a topic of conversation because they're quite large pieces. Like the, as I said, I like buying Star Wars Lego and they have a series of Star Wars Lego called the Ultimate Collectors Series. It's so got buy- you hook, line and Oh, it it does. Like between the amount of money that goes to Apple and the amount of money that goes to Lego from me, it's amazing there's anything left at all. But uh, yeah, people will say, wow, that Lego, like that's enormous. That's really intricate. And uh, and I'm like, yeah. And then kids will come over and like, I've got a few slightly smaller pieces than the Superstar Destroyer that I'll just say, here, have a play with this. And parents are like, are you sure it's okay for them to play with this? Like, what if yep. they take it apart? And I say, well, that's kind of the point. <laughs> Let go. That's that's fine. I'll, I will reconstruct it later. It's just reminded me, actually, um, I'm looking over in a bookcase and my daughter, uh, she's four and a half, she constructed a, um, a camper van. It was the first sort of Lego creation. And we sat, I was way into it. I was more into it than she was, but I promised her that I would help her fix it. So uh, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the reminder. That's all right. It's, um, yeah, it's, Sorry, it's just it's just fun. Yeah, it's good. Fun. And you need do you, like on that. Do you need to have interests outside of school? Because you strike me as someone who is um, a busy is probably the wrong word because that sort of assumes that you have no control over your time. But uh, but you seem to be someone who who fills up their time um, with things that you care deeply about. Is it important to have things that are just there for fun in yeah. your life? You you. Yes, because um, have you always been like that? No, you you need it, and you definitely need it. And um, over the it's you know Lego is one of the the ways that I can sort of disconnect and de-stress. You know, re- you know, read history books. That's great. I'm a bit of a computer gamer, although I haven't had really much time to yeah uh, play uh, any computer games over the last few years. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, well, I'm a bit of a sci-fi geek as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the last big game that I played was um, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, which I absolutely loved. And the sequel's coming out next year, I think. Yeah. And so I've got a time when I will sit down to play that to make sure that the rest of my life doesn't suffer because I, I, I tend to sort of go all in and sort of binge on it 
yeah. uh, things like that. So Lego is good because you can kind of get it and build it and it's done. Yeah. It doesn't take you four weeks in order to get through it, but you do need that. And one of the things that I am simultaneously very strict about and also I need to get better at is trying to keep work at work, mm. uh, which in the role that I have at my school is incredibly difficult to do. But I try and ensure that when I'm at home, I'm not doing work all the time. And I often fail at this. And I'm sorry for uh, calling you at home to record a podcast. No, I, no, that's, that's all look, right. I, I completely understand, Ash, and that's something that, um, I mean, I, I really struggle with that. Um, like I said I've got two young kids. Um, I, I, I'm married. Um, we are living in Sydney. It's just chaos. And so I completely understand that. And I think um, it's, not, it's not until quite recently that I've understood that a change has to be made. Um, and for me, having young kids means I can't stay at school till yeah. seven, eight. Th this, is, to. Yeah. this is one of the, like, if we look at everything that's happened through COVID yeah. um, and, you know, I was here in Australia at the epicenter mm -hmm. of it in Melbourne with yeah. our two massive lockdowns where we were basically working from home for a term and, and things like that. One of the things that's really come out of that for me is that both for myself and my colleagues is that people are increasingly want to, wanting to set up clear boundaries yeah. around their work uh, and between that and the rest of their lives. And that was almost, you know, it was a matter of, of some importance when we were working from home, everything started to blend together. And as we've sort of returned to a sense of normalcy, I've noticed in my colleagues, quite rightly, I would say, is that they're wanting to, to set up much clearer boundaries. And schools, and this is not a comment on my school, this is not a comment on any schools, the nature of the industry is that we have not been very good at this over a very long period of time. That, and that I think we, we have to take a look at what we can do as a profession to try and ensure that people can have much clearer boundaries between work and home. Yeah. Because if a school only works by teachers requiring to give, you know, 12 to 14 hour days to make it work, that is not sustainable. Yeah. And going forward, it will become increasingly unsustainable. And I think we're starting to see the um, chickens come home to roost in some of the current workplace shortages that we're seeing agree, across yeah. the education industry is that there's a lot of people who just say, no, I'm not doing this. Yeah. And you can have all the arguments you want about, well, you work more in term time and then you get extra school holidays. And I think that, that it's not enough anymore. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I was speaking to a, at a, a associations uh, conference I was at. So, you know, I'm, I'm president of the History Teachers Association. Yeah. So I was at a conference, which was not just teaching associations. It was all different associations who were there for some professional learning. And I was speaking with the um, CEO of a forestry workers association. Fascinating woman to, to speak to. And I was asking her around things around recruitment. And she said, Oh, it's interesting, all the administration positions that we are currently advertising for throughout the industry, almost all of the people who are applying for them are people are teachers who wow. want to leave the profession. Wow. And that, that was, I thought, incredibly worrying. And I asked her, do you know why? And she said, yeah, we asked them, like, what, what interests you in this? And, and she said one of the biggest things was um, the ability to work from home, uh, which is a problematic uh, desire to combat in an education system yes. uh, and the other thing she said was they just wanted a job where when they finished work they could go home and not have to think about work until 9am the next day wow that is something I think we might be able to do some work around as an entire profession and um Ash practically like what and this is getting a bit personal now but what does that look like in your own life I mean obviously we've talked about hobbies and having things outside but um and you're obviously in a, in a quite a substantial leadership role in your school and as you mentioned you're the president of the history teachers association and so i'm sure there would be um uh, constraints on your time but how do you practically look after yourself and make sure that you are um able to do this wonderful job for the long I, 
I'd probably start out by saying I probably do it badly at yeah. the moment. Uh, and that's me being very honest. I would yeah. say that it's something I, I try and do. There's simple things that I do, which is if an email arrives in my inbox after sort of five or six o'clock, it doesn't get looked at. Yeah. Until you have email day. on your phone? Is that I something? do. Um, and so... I mean, I just when I say it doesn't get looked at, yeah. probably not true in, in that I look at it and um, an action it, and maybe. I sort of triage it in my mind around, is this something I need to do about right now or not? Yeah. yeah. Do I need to deal with any element of this? 99 times out of 100, no. That's tricky though, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, that didn't work for me uh, because I would read it and it would just sit there whether I needed to action it or not um, but maybe maybe you're different the know. other the other trick I learned is the the magic of the scheduled send which is if I need to deal I'll, I'll schedule and then the, the person won't get the reply until 8 a.m yeah. the next day um, the other thing is I, I like I try you know I try and keep my weekends relatively free of work again I'm not very good at it it's something I'm I fight against but um, it does mean that during the school day, I'm usually pretty busy because I'm trying to get through everything within that time period. And I try and be very honest with, with my principal and uh, my colleagues on the leadership team around what, what I have the bandwidth to be able yeah. to do and what I don't. Uh, and I think that's part of moving forward. We do need to be a lot more honest with people yeah. and really to fight back against quite strongly yeah. the, the idea of that, the martyr teacher Yes, yeah. and and that that is actually quite a, a negative and and um, almost sort of toxic view in a school culture where you have those people who are working until eleven p.m. and that and we need to actually say that's not a good thing. Yeah, and it should never be seen as something. It's it's something we need to tell people you need yeah. to stop doing that. And once again, another personal question, um, and we can edit this out if you wish. Um, what would your partner say about your work-life balance? Uh, well, he—I'd uh, probably say he thinks it's—he's uh, worse than I am. Right. So he's—he's uh, in a leadership position at a—he basically does my job at another independent school. Okay. So, uh, I would say that I probably model it a little bit better than he right. does. Um, uh, and as I said, we we fight against it. Often, yeah. it's a losing battle, and and. I don't know, yeah. you know, being honest, I don't know what the answer is to this problem. I, I think, you know, you, sometimes if you go into school leadership, you know, you're, you're at, on the executive team, yeah. you do have to concede that, so yeah. this is not a nine to five job. Absolutely. I'm happy to concede that. And if you want a nine to five job, you're going to have to pick a different one, but you sort of do have to push back as much as you can, because otherwise, you know, you're going to burn out. Yeah. And uh, those people who stay in the profession their entire lives, I think that's becoming increasingly rare. And if we want to make sure that we nurture the next generation of educational leaders in our school, we can't have the, like, we can't let the job become all consuming, yeah. even though we still do have to admit, if you want to be an executive leader in a school, it's not a nine to five job. Yeah, uh, but it can't also be every waking moment of your life. Yeah, and look, that's that is it. Like I said, I'm in an executive role, and that is something that I struggle with. I'm I'm part of a wonderful, supportive, um, brilliant school. I'm very happily married. Uh, I have an incredibly supportive wife who is from a family of teachers, but chose uh, sense and income um, over that. Um, but it is conversations that we have, um, and especially I think with you both, like having two. Uh, people in leadership roles there would be times in the term that are incredibly busy I mean reports come around yep. same time every term probably for both well definitely for both of you and so I think there I guess there needs to be an extra level of grace um, and communication with I mean do you guys yeah. have a shared calendar do you we do have a shared calendar yeah yeah. Uh, it's you do have to bring an element of um, organization to your personal lives with that um, it's Look, it's, it's difficult. There's no way to get around that, but it's not impossible. And I think there's ways we can do it better. And I'm sure there are people who do it better than I do. I think we almost need to do a whole bunch of professional learning for school leaders around yeah. sort of organization, productivity, work-life balance. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, they won't, they won't last the distance. I, you know, I'm trying to be strict because I know that if I'd worked 
14 hour days every day, I'm not going to be in this job for more than three or four years because yeah. I burn out. But also, I think like for me, I have, as I said, I've had, I've got two young kids and, and that has really put things in perspective mm. for me because as I mentioned before, I, I can't come home at seven o'clock because that's the time that I want to be um, putting them in the bath, um, putting them to bed and reading them a yep. story. And for me, that is some, I can't be replaced in that. That's my job. I'm a, I'm a parent and I love that. And for me, that is, um, I think for me, having that balance at home really puts things in perspective because and I think, it, yeah, sorry. No, yeah. I was going to say, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really blessed at the school that I'm at that I have an amazingly high performing team around me. Yeah. Uh, both, yeah. Both at an executive level, my colleagues are on uh, our school management team are outstanding yeah uh and they are such a pleasure to work with every single one of them and my principal is is absolutely amazing but then also my my direct reports um uh blow me away every day as well Same. so i have a team of like four senior teaching and learning leaders who uh I, I have the ability to farm out some of the work to yeah and that's not necessarily the case in every school i work at an incredibly privileged school yeah. that has the resources to ensure that we have people like multiple people in doing these jobs and that is not the case at every school which yeah. don't have the same resources that we do and so i'm not sure what the answer is in those circumstances when you don't have those people who become your support network mm -hmm. or there's not enough to be able to farm out the work to make sure it doesn't consume everything when um when someone says to you, uh, well, sorry, when you ask someone, how was your day? And their response is, yeah, I'm very busy. Uh, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts about that? Because it's um, almost anything like trendy to say that. Yeah, it's the cult of the busyness. And yeah. they, people say that like it's... It's a, not a badge of pride. No, it's not like a badge of pride. I'm not impressed by it. Yeah. No, and I'm not impressed by it either. And the people who run around, I sort of... I have a I have a problem at the moment that I don't know what to do about with this. Okay. Because in my leadership position, um, there's a quote that that is used about uh, about the justice system, which mm. is justice must not only be done; it must be seen to be done. Which yeah. I think applies to leadership as well. The the work of leadership has to be done, but it also must be seen to be done. Yeah. Because you don't want to be that person where people look at and goes, "I don't know what he does." You know, what's the point of his existence in this school? He doesn't seem to do anything that impacts my life. But at the same time, I'm, I don't have the character where I'm going to be going around telling everyone what I'm doing and, oh, I'm so busy, blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure what the way of mm -hmm. sort of balancing that out is about making sure people can see that the work is being done that will ultimately benefit them in their jobs. Yeah. But I agree. I, I When people go around saying, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. I'm like, that, uh, that doesn't make me have mm. a more positive opinion of you when yeah. you say that and and like I said I, I'm I'm not Im impressed by that I mean I am no. full like and I, I always I try and like search for other words other than busy tired stressed because mm. I might say oh look I've got a bit on my plate at the moment but but for me that's busyness and that that, that frantic that is that sort of frantic yeah. association with business is something which for me um, talks more of a lack of prioritization. Um, and, and so uh, actually, well, I don't, it's, I suppose I'd say on that, like even people don't go around saying how busy yeah, you are, yeah. but I understand the, and I, and I actively try and understand the mindset. And I think it's that, that, that trouble that I was speaking about just before mm. is they want you to know that they're working hard and perhaps we, we, as a, as a profession or as a community, we don't have ways of expressing that beyond the, look at how busy I am, look at how busy I am. Absolutely. Yeah. And is, and, you know, perhaps one of the things I need to get better at is saying to people, I trust, like, I know, and I trust you to do your job. You don't need to necessarily yeah. come and prove it to me. Yeah. Uh, like I, sure. I, tr I can see the work that you're doing is of good value. So, you know, and if you're feeling uh, overwhelmed by the work, then come and speak with me and we'll put some structures in place to ensure that you can have a better work-life balance as yeah. well. And Ash, can I just, I, even though you are not, and, and, and nor am I, but we're not, I, I don't know necessarily answers to this, but I think the fact that you have the self-awareness to be able to talk about, to be able to talk about it and the importance of how people come across and the importance of sort of what is essential to your role. So thank you for that for your self-awareness for that. I know there's a lot of 
leaders that do not have that. So I think the fact that you are even asking those questions is hugely important. And um, Ash, I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, right. And I just had a couple more questions. Um, what currently has your attention uh, in terms of your work and, and sort of what problem are you uh, trying to solve at the moment? So my currently um, I've been reading so many books that sort of are around topics or related topics to that sort of cognitive psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I really, and perhaps this might be confirmation bias for me, to be honest, but there's, it raises a lot of inconvenient truths. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if I speak back to, you know, something uh, that we spoke about <laughs> earlier, um, you know, my sort of preference for more explicit and direct instruction ways of teaching, that sort of comes out of a lot of the, the cognitive psychology sort of research and related fields as well. And it does raise some sort of inconvenient truths when yeah. around how people learn. Yeah. And it's something that is becoming increasingly more spoken about in education is the models of how people learn because if we have we want to do a particular model structure program and it doesn't align with the current models of how people learn you have to ask some questions around Mm -hmm. is this something that we should be doing given there is a misalignment here we want to do this and all got all this research that says that's not how people learn yeah Every piece of research says this is not how the brain learns. Yeah. So why would we do it? And so there's, it's raised a lot of inconvenient truths. You know, yeah. some of the the stuff around you know discovery learning. Yeah. Um, that it just says this is a bad idea. Yeah. And so that's what has my attention. At the Interesting. Moment. Interesting. Um, and fast forward 20, 30, 40 years. Um, I know it's hard to imagine. We're probably roughly the same age. Um, but what do your, uh, what would you like your legacy to be uh, in this space? Legacy, yeah, that's an interesting question to ask a history teacher, uh, <laughs> is what do you want your legacy to be? Um, I think if people said about me, he left the place in a better shape than he found it in. Yeah. I would be quite happy with that to be my legacy. Fantastic. I think that is a wonderful response. Um, and Ash, I just wanted to thank you for your, your time today um, and also your uh, contribution to our wonderful profession. Uh, thank you for, um, for asking questions that I think some people are probably too afraid to ask when it comes to how we are teaching um, effectively. Um, and um, yeah, I'm hugely grateful uh, for the work that you're doing. So uh, I really well, appreciate it. Thank you so much, Matthew. The, the work we do in education, the questions we ask, it's a process that we, and it will be always be an ongoing process. And in yeah. 10 years time, we'll look back and realize how much more we've learned in 10 years than we knew now. Knew now. Yeah. And so thank you for the opportunity to speak. Uh, it's platforms like these where we get a chance to really sort of, you know, take stock and even, and, and reflect for myself on what, what do I believe on yeah. some of these things. So thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. No, no problem. And I'll make sure I put uh, all of your contact information and any of the resources and books that we talked about in our show notes. And uh, I, I hope that you uh, uh, have a wonderful term three. Thank you so much. We'll have to start up a podcast just about Lego at some point. Definitely. I would, uh, I would love to listen to that. Thanks so much, Ash. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we can continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.